You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I want to suggest to you tonight, if there weren't for a man named Andrew, there never would have been a disciple named Peter. If I were to ask you tonight to name the 12 first disciples of Jesus Christ, if you're like me, you might get half of them. Um, I know one name that would certainly be on your list, and that's Peter. Everybody knows Peter. He's kind of the Rudolph red-nosed reindeer of the group, right? The first one that comes to mind. Um, Somewhere, some of you might have Andrew, but most of us probably not. He's kind of the Blixen or the Dunder uh, of the group, you know? Is that one of the reindeer? I think so. Not sure. Um, But without Peter... uh, Without Andrew, sorry, there wouldn't be a Peter. And I want to suggest that it's part of the good news that God multiplies love through our relationships with one another. We're beginning tonight a new series called Multiplies Greatly. It's a phrase from Deuteronomy 6.3 where God made a wonderful promise to Israel that they would multiply greatly. That promise to them would have been an echo of Genesis chapter 1 where God gave his first command and blessing on the human race when he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. God's vision would be those creatures he had made be filled with life and an awareness of his absolute love for them. And that two by two they would multiply and they would fill the planet so that one day all would know around the world of God's great love. Jesus comes to renew this promise and blessing within creation. And he gives his followers a a command that they would uh, make disciples of all nations. And so that God's love in Jesus Christ would be multiplied person by person around the world. That's been our theme for the year, make disciples of nations. And if you've been following with us, you've noticed in the fall we talked about what does it mean to be a disciple And now in the new year, we're turning a corner. We're going to focus a little bit more on what does it mean to make disciples. And we're going to start with Andrew. Andrew, not just because Jesus starts with Andrew, the first disciple that's named in the scripture, but also because Andrew makes making disciples look so simple. And I love that about him. He's so very inviting to me. I oftentimes don't think very much about Jesus' command to go and make disciples, honestly, because I think, I'm not even sure I'm much of a disciple myself. Do I really want to multiply me? I don't, do I have anything to offer people? Where would I even begin? So I think I, like most followers of Jesus, just kind of put that whole mandate to the side. And yet Andrew, Andrew makes a disciple out of his brother, uh, Peter. And it looks so easy when you watch him do it. It happens right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And at that point, Andrew hasn't, uh, he doesn't know anything. Because there have been no miracles, there have been no parables. He could hardly know anything about Jesus. And, and he hardly does anything either. He doesn't preach at Peter, doesn't teach at Peter. So, how does he do it? Well, let's look at the, the account as we find it in John, the Gospel of John. Could you open up your Bible, please, to John chapter 1, verses 25 through 42. You'll find that page 862 of the Pew Bible. And uh, if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read this text together. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. 
When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. By the way, this John you're going to read about is John the Baptist. All right, so listen, here we go. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Well, I'm guessing that you remember tonight that Mr. Rogers was a Presbyterian minister. But I wonder if you remember his, the speech that he gave at the Emmys. The Academy gave Mr. Rogers a Lifetime Achievement Award in 1997. And, you know, you come up and they give you the statuette and you're supposed to say something. And so Mr. Rogers surprises everybody, comes to the microphone. This is what he says. Would you take 10 seconds of silence with me and just think about the people who have helped you become who you are? Doesn't that sound like Mr. Rogers? At first, there's a laughter that kind of rippled through the auditorium. All these celebrities are there, and this seems sort of a silly exercise. But he really means it. He just starts looking at his watch. And since Mr. Rogers is not doing anything, tying up all primetime television, sitting there just looking at his watch, the cameras start to sweep across the audience. And they find face after face. They're trying to figure out what they're being invited to do. Just think about the people in your life who made you who you are. And then, it doesn't take very long, but then it's like time stops. It's like eternity breaks in. And the impact of this invitation is hitting people. And it's like the room begins to multiply. All of a sudden, it's not just the beautiful people that are there, the celebrities, but it's all the people behind them now filling in the room through their imaginations. And you see mothers and fathers and stepsisters and grandparents and counselors and Sunday school teachers and, and teachers and caregivers and friends and roommates and people that shared Christ with them, people who bandaged knees, people who worked at nights to fund education, people who sat in waiting rooms, people who held their hands and their dreams through dark nights of despair. And then the tears begin to come. And you, and you can see it. Mascara is running as the camera picks up on this. Like, what a wonderful exercise. I mean, we could do it tonight, and it would, it would, be, it would be fruitful. I, I'm just guessing it wouldn't take you very long to think of the people in your life that made it possible for you to be here tonight, to be who you are tonight. Um, and yet what I'd like to do is flip it around just a little bit. Tonight, I'd like to ask you 
to consider what would it take for us to be the kind of people that somebody else would think about when they were asked that question. See what I'm saying? In fact, let me ask you to imagine somebody in your life tonight. Picture a friend of yours. Maybe it's someone who comes to church. Maybe it's someone who would never even dream of coming to church. It doesn't matter. Just think of a person right now that's in your life. And now I'd like you to imagine them in the future, a year from now or decades from now. But just imagine that if there are digital videos floating around decades from now, if there's YouTube, that they somehow stumble across this old, old video of a man named Mr. Rogers who gives this strange speech at the Emmys. And let's suppose that your friend takes the 10 seconds and thinks about people. And let's suppose that a tear comes to your friend's eye because they're thinking about you. Now, here's the question. What would you need to do for them to think about you as someone who made them who they are at some point in the future? What would you need to begin to do this week in relationship to them to have that kind of an impact on them? I don't think that much, if Andrew gives us any clue. I mean, it does take a lot because in Andrew's case, it takes Jesus. But there are only two things that Andrew has to do to make a profound impact in the life of his brother. Two actions, and I'm going to talk about both of them with you tonight. Seeking and finding. These two actions go together. They go together in the Greek language as they do in English language. Seeking and finding. And John seems to emphasize these two verbs in the, in the passage that you just read. It's that simple. But before we look at those two actions, let's just step back for a minute and consider the context of the beginning of John's gospel. We've been studying it this Advent, so it should be familiar to you. John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1, which is the first book in the Bible, have a lot of similarities. Have you ever noticed that? Genesis 1 and John 1 both begin with these words, in the beginning. And Genesis 1 and John 1 through a little bit into 2 both count off seven days. They use the week as a framework for their introductions. So a little bit harder to notice in the Gospel of John. But if you look carefully, you'll see, in fact, John is counting seven days in the first ministry, days of ministry of Jesus as he begins. As the Word becomes flesh, the Word begins to be communicated through human relationships, one relationship at a time, day after day, those first seven days. Now you ask, why would John present Jesus in this way? Most scholars think that John wants to present Jesus as the beginning of the new creation. John wants to present Jesus as one who is creating a new people, a new humanity. Fulfilling the blessing of Genesis 1.28. And it happens through relationships. And this is where we meet Andrew. By the way, that's from John the Baptist all the way to the wedding at Cana. And Andrew is the first stop after John the Baptist. Now, let's ask ourselves, who is Andrew? Which is the right question. Because, you know what? Nobody really knows. John doesn't even believe his own readers know who Andrew is. That's why he has to introduce Andrew as Peter's brother. Did you notice that in the text you read? He says, Andrew, I mean Simon Peter's brother. 
In other words, you know Peter, he's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You probably don't know Andrew, but I'm going to talk to you about Andrew because he's the star of this story. He's the dunder, he's the blixen, he's not getting any press, he's not the celebrity, he's not there at the Emmys that night, but he's the one who makes Peter's presence possible. Andrew. Now what does Andrew do? He brings Simon, because that's what his brother's name was originally, Simon. He brings Simon to Jesus. Boom. And Jesus looks at Simon and says, you'll no longer be called Simon, you'll be called Peter, which means rock. Jesus gives Simon a new identity. And, And what has to happen for that to take place? Two things, seeking and finding. So let's look at those. First, Andrew seeks Jesus. This is really my first point. Andrew seeks Jesus. And in so doing, he discovers a new way to see his own life. Remember, Fred Rogers arrested that audience with a profound question. And Jesus does the same thing. In fact, the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John are a question. Isn't that so much like Jesus? But now the Word has become flesh, and when the Word actually speaks for himself in the drama of John's Gospel, Jesus will ask a question. He'll make you think. And here's the question. Verse 38, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Literally, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Andrew and another disciple of John the Baptist had just started to follow Jesus. And Jesus has turned around and asked this profound question. Well, we don't really know exactly what Andrew is thinking. We don't know what's going through his mind at this point. We know he's a fisherman. Andrew and his brother Simon fish with James and his brother uh, John who are the sons of Zebedee, up in Galilee. They're all four of them are fishermen, so they seek fish. But I think there's more going on here than that, just seeking fish, because they've taken a couple of days off. They've left Galilee, they've gone down the Jordan River, and they're with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, this strange figure who's leading a massive renewal movement. You cannot overestimate the importance of that renewal movement in the first century. It lives even after Jesus, John's renewal movement. And what are they seeking? Well, I got to tell you, they're down there in the desert because they're just so tired of what the world has to offer them. They're so tired of the news in their day, in in the same way that I think you and I are, uh, or at least I am tired of the news in our day. They are tired of the corruption. They are tired of the factionalism. They are tired of the violence. And they just think there must be something more than this to life. We've tried it all. Let's go follow this John the Baptist guy in the wilderness and think maybe God will offer us something that we haven't tried yet or something that's more deeply satisfying. So when Jesus turns around and asks John, uh, Andrew, and the other figure probably is John, by the way. He's not named here. John who writes the gospel, uh, the beloved disciple, too modest to name himself at the beginning of his own gospel. So Andrew and John are there, and Jesus asks the question, what are you seeking? He's asking them not just to think about why they're following a stranger, but what are they seeking in life? And I think that's a really interesting question to begin the new year with. So I offer it to you. You you might want to ponder that a little bit this week. What am I seeking? We're all seeking something. We all have a bundle of subterranean motivations that drive our action. We don't often consider them, but they explain why we do what we do. And so it's worth understanding them. We're all seeking meaning and relationship and purpose 
And we go seeking those things in so many different ways, some good, some not so good, you know, including money, sex, and power. But the question is, in all of those things, how long will it take us and how much of life will be lost before we discover that ultimately every one of those things will disappoint? That we are just like those first disciples around John the Baptist yearning for something more, yearning for something that the world does not offer us that can only be found in Jesus. In God's love embodied in Jesus. If you're wondering what your motivations might be and what you're seeking, let me give you a few diagnostic questions. There are four of them, and I'll just give them to you quickly, but they might help you tease this out. First is, what would others say is important to me? Sometimes other people know us better than we know ourselves, so what would others say is important to me if they just look at my life? Secondly, Where do I tend to turn for safety, comfort, or refuge when things get hard in crisis? Where do I tend to turn? That'll tell you what your defaults are. Third, whom do I most want to please? Or whom do I feel I have to please? And why? That'll tell you what you're seeking. And then finally, what makes me angry? The answer to the question, what makes me angry, tells me what do I feel I can't afford to lose? Because anger is a response to loss. In any event, Jesus asks us this question, and I don't think Andrew has a very good answer. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Or maybe it is a good answer. He actually answers Jesus' question with a question. Did you notice? Jesus says, what are you looking for? And uh, Andrew says, well, Rabbi, where are you staying? You sense a non sequitur there? I'm like, what is, what is it? I mean, maybe that's what we do when we feel like we're on the spot. We kind of deflect attention away. But I think it's also possible that the reason Andrew asks that question is what he means is, um, Rabbi, where are you staying? I don't really know what I'm seeking, but I'd sure like to be with you. And maybe if I were with you, you'd help me discover it. Which is exactly what happens. And Jesus then gives the grand invitation that he gives each of us tonight. Come and see. Those are really important words in the Gospel of John. You come and see. Come and see fierce. This is the invitation for which God became incarnate. He became the, the eternal God, took on our humanity in order to issue this invitation to each and every one of you. Come and see if maybe I am not what you have been seeking all along. Come and see if my eternal, indestructible, gracious love for you isn't the only thing that will ultimately satisfy you. You yearn for something, and I yearn for something, and I yearn for you, and you yearn for me. doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter who you are. I offer you a fresh start. And then John and Andrew spend the afternoon with Jesus. We have this strange little note here at the end of 39. It says, it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So What? Interesting, most New Testament scholars think that this little chronological note tends to authenticate the historicity of this passage. There's no apparent reason for the author to give us that time stamp, but it has the ring of an eyewitness, of somebody who was just there and was profoundly impacted. It's as though for Andrew, time stood still at that moment. That was the moment when he realized God's love is what he's been seeking all of his life. And it's standing right there in front of him in a person. And he goes, oh my gosh, this is it. 
And it was four o'clock. I'm going to tell you, the moment you discover how much God loves you, the moment you discover that God has become human in order to rescue you and draw you into his eternal love, time will stop for you too, and you'll never forget that moment. And, And that's what's happening to Andrew at this point. He seeks God. And this is where disciple making begins. It always begins with a personal encounter with God in Jesus Christ. God has made his love concrete for us in Christ. But then there's a second action. First, Andrew seeks Jesus. He discovers a different way to see his own life as a beloved child. Secondly, Andrew finds a friend. He discovers a different way now to see other people, the people around him, the people in his life. I think uh, Fred Rogers, with his little 10-second exercise, invited the celebrities to grab a hold of a new priority, not accolades or prizes, real value in your life, like people. And and so Jesus does the same thing for Andrew. We notice in verse uh, 41, it says, he, that's Andrew, first found his brother. The moment that he realized the depth of God's love in Jesus Christ, he first, that's a new priority, that's the adverb, He, he is a new priority, he first found... And what I want you to catch right off the bat is how natural, reflexive, immediate, joyful, and simple this reaction is. And if there's ever a moment in my life when I think about Jesus' command to make disciples, and I'm not thinking about it in this exact same way as natural, reflexive, immediate, joyful, and simple, then I'm missing the, the core of what it means to make a disciple. It's simply to have found something so wonderful you can't afford not to share it with the people around you. It's like when you go to a restaurant that's really great, right? Or you read a good book and you go, oh my gosh, I know a hundred people that need to see this movie or read this book or I'm going to bring her to the rest. She loves good food. She'd really appreciate this place. I got it. You're kind of bursting. You're uncomfortable until that moment when you can share that experience. And that's all that's happening. Jesus doesn't give a command. There's no sense of obligation or duty or, oh, I really should go get Peter involved in this thing now. It's no, wow, what a great joy. And he goes and finds Peter, Simon at the the time. Now, what's the language of finding all about? Was his brother lost? No, I don't don't think it's his brother. He knows what his brother is. You know, if you have a brother, usually you know where your brother is. And certainly Andrew knows what his brother is. Why finding? I think it's because the people who most need God's love are oftentimes right in front of us, hidden in plain sight. And he had to discover that Simon was a person for whom this discovery has great implications. He had to discover that Peter has value. He had to discover that Peter has needs. He had to discover that Peter is also a person seeking with deep yearning. He had to discover that the hope he found in Jesus Christ is hope that he can share with his brother. He had to find his brother as a candidate for God's love in the same way. And so he finds his brother. And I just wonder who's in your life and in my life that we can find in that same way. Why is it that we tend to think about making disciples, if we ever do, as something that happens far away from us, outside of our relational network? Is it we're afraid to risk our relationships? Is it we don't really see the people in our lives as people Jesus loves in the same way he loves us? Who are the people that you can find 
I'm talking about people in your class, people on your team, people at work, people in your neighborhood, people in your extended family, people in your social networks. Andrew found Simon. I mean, what if in the way that God sets up the dominoes of life, he has intentionally put the very people in your life that he knows you're the perfect person to share love with? You're just the one. You're just the kind of Andrew that would make them a Peter. What if? God's big enough to do that. This is exciting. There are people that we can find. Let me give you an example of this. Linda Wilson Allen is a bus driver. And she lives in San Francisco. And if you ask a bunch of people in San Francisco, tell someone who's made a difference in your life, hundreds of them, hundreds of them would say, this bus driver, Linda Wilson Allen. The San Francisco Chronicle did a cover article, front page, about this woman. So so fascinating. It's the kind of bus driver that... um, People would give gifts to. People would take her out to lunch on her break. People, when she got off the bus at the end of her shift and another bus driver got on, uh, frequently the riders would stand and give her a standing ovation. They were loaning their vacation homes to Linda. Now, you go, what's with Linda? Well, you know what she did? She learned all the names of her passengers. She would memorize when they got on, when they got off. If they weren't at the stop... That they should be at, she would wait 15, 20 seconds. And oftentimes they'd come running out of the coffee shop. Linda Wilson Allen is a person who learned how to find the people on her bus as people she could love in concrete ways. She said, I like being out there with all the people. She found Tanya. Tanya was new in town. She was studying late one night at the city college. She was cold in the bus shelter. And Linda asked her name. She said, you're out here by yourself? Why don't you come over for Thanksgiving and kick it with me and the kids? She found Elsie, another uh, woman, with a limp. And uh, one day she drove Elsie all the way home at the end of her shift. Now she and Elsie play Scrabble together. She found a woman named Ivy, an 80-year-old, and helped her with groceries. And soon Ivy was letting all the other buses pass by. The only bus she wanted to ride on was Linda's bus. And Linda now monthly takes Ivy grocery shopping with her. Why is it with Linda? Well, here's what the the Chronicle says. Her mood is set at 2.30 a.m. when she gets down on her knees to pray for 30 minutes. She she says, there's a lot to talk about with the Lord, says Linda Wilson-Allen. Wow. Here's a woman, because she seeks Jesus finds friends wherever she goes. She finds friends with whom she can share and make tangible God's love. Doesn't take much more than that to make a disciple. By the way, the reason that's true is because Jesus is the one who makes disciples. They're his followers. That's why when he says, go make disciples, he says, I will be with you always to the end of the age because he's the one who does it. He's right there with you as you engage small acts of kindness with people around you. And I say small acts of kindness because that's all Andrew ever did. Right? He just, well, let me bring my brother. He shows up three times in John's Gospel. This is the first. The next time it's going to be a time when there's a crisis. 5,000 people, no food. And everyone says, oh, we got a big problem on our hands. What does Andrew do? Small act of kindness. He finds a boy who has five loaves and two fishes and says, I know it's not much, but do you think this could help? <laughs> and you know what? With Jesus, it does. Jesus multiplies it. 
And then at the end of the gospel, the climax, the Gentiles are starting to get interested in this Messiah, and some of the Greeks come, and Andrew says, I could introduce you to Jesus, and Jesus describes the power of his sacrificial death for them. Great impact. I think Andrew has no idea how much impact he has, and I believe you have no idea how much impact you're having as well. When I was in high school, there was a a woman, a young woman in a school who was a strong Christian. I was very impressed by her, head up on her pedestal. She came from a Christian family. She was everything I was not. I was very new to the faith and very raw. I'm raw today. Imagine what I was like in high school. But I just tell you this, several years later at a reunion, she came up to me and she said, George, I just want to tell you how much difference you made in my life during high school. Thank you for encouraging me in my faith. And I thought, you've got me confused with some other guy. I guess it happens at high school reunions. But you know what? She said, no, it was you. And honestly, to this day, I can't, I hardly even believe her because I can't remember anything at all that I did that would have, all I can assume is that I did some small little things that Jesus himself used and made big in her life that encouraged her in her own discipleship and helped her follow him better. Someday you'll get to heaven. I believe heaven will be populated, not with Peters, but with Andrews. People that no one ever recognizes until that last day. And you'll see the impact that you make. So let's seek and find this week. Because I want to be Mr. Rogers, I want to close by giving you 10 seconds of silence. And here's what I would invite you to do with that 10 seconds. First of all, seek Jesus. Pray to him. And second of all, think about people. Think about some people. Ask him to bring to mind some people that you can find this week and share God's concrete love with them. Let's go. Dear Jesus, we're seeking you this evening. We know our yearning and we thank you that you give us deep satisfaction. And we seek you tonight, not just for ourselves. We seek you on behalf of these people that you've brought to our minds. And we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you'll do a work in us and a work in them that allows us to come together this week somehow. And that you'll allow us, through some small, tangible acts of kindness, to communicate your love, that they might be impressed, not with us, but with you. We pray that they might hear a voice beyond our own voice that we know is the word of God made flesh in our love for them. And we pray that they will hear you say and respond to your invitation saying, come and see. Pray it in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.